Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. We kick off our 2012 Writer's Buzz series with Lighthouse instructor Michael Catlin reading his one-character show called Bad Dad. At a young age, Michael's son was diagnosed with leukemia. Written as a theatrical memoir in the vein of Spalding Gray, this funny and poignant performance illuminates how one dad dealt with his son's illness. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Thank you for coming. This is um, a really special night, and we're going to tell you why, Um, but we're going to try to build suspense for a few minutes. I'm Andrea Dupree. This is Mike Henry. Um, Hello. Fifteen years ago, we had this crazy idea to start this thing. and um, This thing. This thing that really actually doesn't make logical sense to try to do. Um, Anyway, we're so glad you're here. This is a really special night because tonight is kind of the coming out party of Dan Manzanares. But, but not that kind of coming out. He just got, he just got married, so, yeah. Well, I mean, that's a coming out. No, no, That's yes, a coming yes. out. It's like a debutante ball for Dan. It's a debutante kind of coming out. And, and also for Michael Catlin, who is going to be inter- introduced by um, Dan Manzanares. So we're doing multiple layers of introductions. Which kind of gives you a peek behind the veil of Lighthouse, of what we do and how we operate. So Dan came to us about three years ago, or two years ago, or maybe a year ago. That's my... (laughs) Remember the time thing? Yeah. It was a while back, and he said, I would love to be like your creative curator, we laughed hysterically. And, and, and then he, he does this thing he always likes to do. He goes, yes. <laughs> right on. And so, like all these years later or months or days, he now is our creative curator. He's actually on staff as the creative curator. And this is his first, like, truly curated event where he nabbed the instructor that, that he loves. And this is not the coming out story. This is really he loves... <laughs> Uh, Michael Catlin, we all love him, and he said he's going to do a thing, and we're going to do a thing, and so this is really exciting for all of us. And he's like, and, and Mike's really great. Michael's really great, and it's called Bad Dad, and there's lots of swear words, and and it's really cool. And you know, Dan said awesome, and then Dan told me, and I said awesome, and so yeah, please give it up for Dan. Thanks, everybody. Uh, my name is Dan Manzanares, and I'm the creative curator here at Lighthouse. <laughs> Vamos! We're going to get to that later. Now on to Bad Dad. Um, I have the bio. Hold on. All right. Yeah, just go ahead and I oh. make sure you do it right. Okay. <laughs> ah. We didn't discuss this about yeah, the coming okay, out party. Yeah, okay. okay. <clears throat> so, uh, Michael Catlin. <laughs> As an actor, Michael has worked before the camera in Europe and America and appeared in over 300 episodes of the CBS daytime series Capital. His stage credits... huh? 
<laughs> His stage credits include the crit- critically acclaimed Palace of the End, an open at the top 49th parallel production at the NoHo Art Center in Los Angeles, for which he has been nominated for a 2007 Los Angeles Weekly Theater Award for Best Solo Performance. I actually won that. He won the hell out of that. 365... Kicked it. <laughs> 365 days in or plays in 365 days by Susan Laurie Parks at CTG Shakespeare LA, the West Coast premiere of the Seth Greenland's Jerusalem, and the world premiere of The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. His numerous Los Angeles and regional stage credits include roles at the Mark Taper Forum, Taper, uh-huh. okay, The Odyssey, The Colony, and the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis, Minnesota. All right. Uh-huh. This continues. Michael was a founding member and a member emeritus of the emeritus. Ma- emeritus. God. Shit. Wait a minute. Wait, wait. You're a writer? Oh. <laughs> Holy mackerel. I'm a tennis player okay. who writes. Okay. God damn it. Damn. Is, that, is that in the podcast, Jeremy? <laughs> damn it. All right. Um... <laughs> of the multi-award-winning NoHo Ace Theater Company in Los Angeles, where he was also the company literary manager. His short play, The Porter and the Man in the Chair, was performed in early 2008 as part of the departures at the NoHo Arts Center, where it received positive mentions from the LA Times and the Daily Variety. Since moving to Denver in 2010, Michael has worked at the Denver Center Theater Company, as well as teaching workshops and story development at the Lighthouse Writers Workshop in Denver. That was an edit, so we had to make sure he said it correctly. Yeah. Uh, Michael has written and sold motion picture screenplays, including The Enchantment, which, brought, which was bought by Universal Pictures and the Birnbaum Winkler Company in 1987. And <laughs> no, man, that was big. Okay. And an adaptation of Isabel Allende's short story, Wallamai, edit, en- entitled uh, Children of the Moon, in partnership with TVC. Uh, Go ahead. Do you want me to do that? Okay. Communicazione Televisia Italia. His current project of Arthur, <clears throat> or no, his current project, his ninth full length screenplay, I Remember You, follows the journey of Arthur, a 70 plus year old man. Who, uh, who has a form of dementia in which he hallucinates his dead wife and travels to the Santa Monica Pier with her to reconnect with what was true about his life. Michael has written for the theater, television, commercial copy, and is a freelance show designer and imagineer. His one-man show, Bad Dad, is an exploration of the law of unintended consequences in the raising of one's child against the backdrop of childhood leukemia. Alternating between hilarity and poignant personal insights, Bad Dad is the coming-of-age story of how to raise a parent. Thanks, Dan. All right. Michael Catlin. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. My name is Michael Catlin, and I am the Bad Dad. And right from the get-go here, I want to be clear. I'm not talking bad being a bad dad in any way pervy, abusive, sick, or creepy kind of way. I'm talking more like an appropriate, childish, and unexpected behavior, a misbehaving way, like Homer Simpson or Peter from Family Guy, you know, the guy who means well but has absolutely no ability to edit himself. (laughs) But I didn't think anyone would be interested in a piece called Misbehaving Dad or I'm Like Homer. It's 
just doesn't have the right ring, thus, welcome to bad dad. I want to start with this basic premise. In parenting, there are always unintended consequences. Always. The law of unintended consequences. It's a corollary to the law of cause and effect. No matter who you are, what you believe, what might be your moral system, systems of belief, whatever, no matter what, there are unintended consequences in the raising of children. You could do something with the very best, most loving of intentions, and it goes south. Or you can do the most inappropriate and wrong thing, and it works out. You just never know. And you can't control it or them. Children are separate, individualized units of humanity, and they cannot be programmed to play out some unfulfilled fantasy you might have had for yourself or be protected in any way from the ambiguities of life. Children are a little bit like jazz. <laughs> and that you start with a melody, some familiar tune, and now you can teach them that melody, the melody. Hopefully they will learn it well, the head, as it's called in jazz. But when they get to the break and begin to improvise, they will play it their way, no matter what you may think about how well they are playing it, believe or desire. And your only hope ever is that they will come back to the head, that melody you taught them to finish the song someday. Every parent. Let me just say this. Every parent does their very best, even the worst parent, the bad parent, is doing their best to the best of their ability with who they are, what they know in any given moment, in order to give their child all they need to prepare them for adulthood, to instill in them the basics of what they need to know to survive, to be a good person, a good parent when their time comes. The clear proof of this can be seen in the attendance of AA meetings, waiting rooms of psychologists, and the abundance of self-help titles in bookstores. Now, you're thinking to yourself, if this is true, and it is, what could you possibly add to what's already out there about parenting? Nada. Nothing, nunca, not a damn thing. Tonight is simply an exercise in self-interested preservation. That's it, plain and simple. You see, my son is an artist, a musician. He's recently graduated from the Berklee School of Music in Boston, and at one point he played eight instruments. Now he just uses his computer. <laughs> he sings, writes, produces. He was on the first season of Sing Off. Anyway, I suggested that he try to get into Juilliard or the Manhattan School of Music. His response, Dad, I don't need to learn how to be a performer. I am a performer. I need to learn how to make money. So he majored in music business. And he's currently using his business side of his degree to be responsible and take care of his responsibilities. I just happen to be a bad dad. My attitude is, screw the day job. Create. Pursue your art. He's practical. Knows what a plan is. Knows how to execute. He's taking care of the here and now, like getting an apartment so he doesn't have to live on his mother's couch. He's clear that he'll be doing something in music, and so he will. Jazz. Remember, it's all in the, pro in the improvisation. He's clear he will be successful in the music business, and given who he is, he probably will. And this means at some point, some time in the future, most likely after I'm gone, he'll be asked about or write about or want to examine through his art, or worse yet, he'll become so famous there will be biographies about him, and we all know the story. You've seen it. You go to this kind of evening. You have some damaged, slightly deranged, middle-aged artist going on about how my mother was this kind of freak or my dad was that kind of abusive butthole, and the parent never has any opportunity to rebut. How do we know what they're saying is true? No. I want to make sure I get the chance to get the facts out first. 
Now, I've been told that I'm actually a pretty good dad, maybe even a great dad. They point to my son as proof. No. No. Remember, and never forget, the basic premise of parenting is the management of unintended consequences. Look. This is what you get as an owner's man. <laughs> right? That's what you get as a parent. Nothing, nothing but blank pages. There's no training, no requirements, no certification for parenting, no license, nothing. Anyone can do it, and most people become a parent by accident. Those who plan, <laughs> good luck. Good luck with that. Raising a child is like planning to wage war. Ask any general. They will tell you, plan with meticulous precision, and once you engage the enemy, throw the plan out. Make a plan, tear it up. The other side, the enemy has other ideas. The most important responsibility that any human being can take on in a life is the most unprepared for event in a human life. Why? Because it's impossible to plan a life. You simply cannot predetermine how someone will turn up. Let me prove it to you. I have this photo of my son taken on the day he came home. I'm lying in bed with him. He's asleep on my chest. We're both asleep. His mother took the photo. We'd just come home from the hospital. I was driving a limousine at the time. He was born at Cedar sinai Hospital in Beverly Hills. I mean, what a great start to a life, huh? Beverly Hills doctor, limousine ride home? <laughs> anyway, it's my favorite photo. Cute. Really cute. Let's see where we find ourselves now. I should probably set this up. My son wrote the beat and the hook for that piece. The rapper is a really good friend of his uh, from school. One of his collaborators. Wait, wait, wait. That right there, that slide up on it, slide down on it. My son wrote that. Yeah. That's called the hook. A hook is the most memorable part of a song. It's what people remember most about the song. I'm so proud. Okay. So the question is, how the hell did we get from cute, innocent infant to salacious music producer? What happens to the innocence? Where does it go? I remember a day when my son was about three or four. We were living in this really nice complex, lots of landscaping. We were outside. He's playing, doing what toddlers do. I was gardening something, whatever. As a parent, you get this, you know, and I look up, and he's not right there. You know, right there. And as a parent, you get this really quick ice-cold feeling when you look up and that little perfect expression of love is not in your field of view. So I walk quickly over to where I had last seen him, and he's lying under a bush on his back, looking up through the branches at the sunlight. 
And I get down next to him to see what's up. And he's just laying there, very calm, kind of serene. So I asked him, what are you doing, buddy? He's just looking a moment up through the bush, and then I'm looking at the light, Daddy. Now I got down under the bush in the dirt with him, looked up through the branches, and realized I used to do the exact same thing when I was age, his age. Lie under a tree or a bush, look up through the branches, watch the play of the light as the branches move to the wind. It was one of those wonderful, intimate, memorable father-son moments. I must have laid there under the bush a long time trying to remember something I'd forgotten. Then a neighbor walked by, asked me if I needed help, and I realized I was lying in dirt under a bush by myself. He headed back to the house. So what the hell happens? Where does that innocent go? That's a rhetorical question. I, I know we grow up, we mature, life steps in and starts giving us clues as to where it's all going and what our part is. Example. 1995. The movie Blank Check. My son was seven at the time. It's a crazy story about a 12-year-old kid who finds a blank check. He fills in $1 million, and lo and behold, the bank cashes it. And what does he do with the cash? He, of course, fills the back and front yards of his house with every conceivable cool toy and doodad a kid would want. And ever so conveniently, there are no parents. They're away, gone, home alone, no parents. What a great premise. The worm turns, however, when we find out that the check actually belongs to a mobster. The FBI gets involved. Hilarity ensues. What clean fun. What could possibly be wrong in taking a seven-year-old to a good, clean, family fun movie like this? In the movie, the female lead is played by the lovely Karen Duffy. You may not remember the lovely Miss Karen Duffy, but in this movie, she is an FBI agent investigating the mobster for whom the check belongs and gets wind of the young man and his windfall. Oh, yes. The plot thickens and twists in an unsettling way. The kid has a crush on the beautiful Karen Duffy FBI agent, and there is this scene where the beautiful Karen Duffy FBI agent takes the kid to dinner. In my mind, I'm asking myself, where is parents? He should be Mirandized. He needs a lawyer. <laughs> but this is a movie, fiction, so whatever. Anyway, they play this scene eating chicken. It's kind of cute, eating fried chicken with their hands. Then suddenly, I get the motif, the reference. The producers are recreating the oyster-eating scene from Tom Jones. You remember the movie Tom Jones? It was a very popular British film from the 1960s based on the Henry Fielding novel and starred Albert Finney and Susan York. A sexy romp is what they called it. <laughs> There's a very famous scene in the film where Albert Finney as Tom Jones and one of his many conquests are eating oysters. They get so completely wrapped up in the eating and the sexual undertone of the scene with the oyster juice dribbling down their chins, smearing it on their own and each other's body, that it naturally leads to a rather juicy sexual coming together at end of scene. The title of the new novel, by the way, is The History of Tom Jones, A Foundling. Foundling. Get it? A found blank check. And thus, the literary connection to this 1995 Walt Disney invention for children called Blank Check. Uh, did I mention this is a Disney movie? Oh, yeah, good old family fun. And so there I am watching this 12-year-old Tom Jones eating fried chicken with his hands with, to be quite honest, a very attractive Miss Karen Duffy FBI agent. 
There is very little dialogue in the scene, mostly intercutting between them as they enjoy eating chicken and they are really getting down on it. His face is covered in chicken grease and a bit of chicken fat has dribbled down her chin, slipping down to her open blouse and landing on her very attractive and awesome chicken greased cleavage. Sweet, dirty Miss Karen Duffy, FBI agent, rubbing chicken grease with a very sexy little finger which only made the spot larger and drew my attention to her awesome cleavage even more. Are you getting where this is going? It was hot. The scene had my absolute attention and interest at this point. To be blunt, I was aroused. I look over to my son who's got this little smile on his face. He seemed to be enjoying the movie, so I figured I was being a rather creepy, slightly pervy, weird dad at this point and figured I needed... To relax. So, movie ends, we go home. In the car, driving home, it's a little quiet. So as any parent might, I ask, did you like the movie? He gives me this, oh yeah, daddy, I liked it a lot. And there's just enough enthusiasm in his tone to encourage me to ask further. What part of the movie did you like most? Now I'm expecting, oh, all the toys, daddy. So I, so I ask, was it the scene with all the toys in the backyard? He had his own jumper and a go-kart and all kinds of squirt guns. Pretty cool, huh? To which I get this ever so slightly noncommittal. Yeah, I like that. But I press. Come on, what part did you really like? And he gets really quiet, which just causes me to turn on the parent dar. You know, the parent dar, that special radar the parents have. And sure enough, just barely on the edge of the screen, we get a little blip. <laughs> Something incoming. I can't tell what it is exactly, but it's coming right at us, and it's closing fast. So I ask, what, buddy? What part did you like the best? And he shakes his head and says, oh, I don't know. Now the parent Dar is indicating differently. And so I press, oh, come on. You could tell me anything. You know that. And he says, I don't want you to get mad at me. Now the parent dar is flashing red, the klaxon's going, ooga, ooga, and a voice in my head is screaming, warning, Will Robinson, warning. We are very close to impact, so I slow the car, pull over to the curb, turn off the engine. I turn to him. Come on, tell me, I'm not going to get mad. Why would I get mad? What part of the movie did you like the most? He looks at me with this really sad look in his eyes and says, you promise not to tell anyone? <laughs> I'm like, of course not. And then his little sweet voice, he says, you know that scene with the chicken? <laughs> yeah, where they're eating chicken. Yes. What about it? It made my peeny heart. <laughs> now from somewhere in the car, I hear, what the fuck? And it took me a few seconds to realize that I hadn't actually screamed it right out loud. It was actually not one voice, but a screaming chorus, a kind of Mormon tabernacle choir on crack singing the what the fuck chorale. What the fuck? What the fuck? What the fuck? And the whole time he's looking at me with this just adorable one of eat him up look on his face wondering what I'm going to do. And in my, head, I'm, in, in my head is this screaming, scratching, nails on chalkboard discordant, 38-part disharmony of parental freaked outness. It's a finally, 
this very soft voice, a soloist of sorts, kind of rises above the choir singing the main melody line of the What the Fuck song and says very calmly and clearly, careful. Be very careful what you say. So we sit there. Seemed like forever. Him looking at me with this very soulful expression, waiting. I'm just looking at him, wondering what the hell I'm going to say that doesn't screw him up forever (laughs) around the issue of sex. Finally, I hear come out of my mouth, you know what, buddy? It made my peeny hard, too. two things that day I didn't know. A six-year-old can have a boner. And the Disney company makes porno for kids. Hey, 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 I'm a bad dad. The real, real thing I learned that day came from the realization that you cannot protect them from life. You can't. You can try all good parents do, but remember, the law of unintended consequences, you can do what you think is protecting them, and all you do is make them interested in the very thing you are trying to protect them from. How many times were you told by your parents not to do such and such and so, and you went and did it anyway? Social inoculation. That's the only thing I found that works. At least that's what I call it. The idea, better they find out about things from me than from the street or their friends, or worse. I'm the one who gave my son context for most things. Me. You can protect children from measles, we inoculate them. doesn't always work, but why not try to protect them from society in the same way? Social inoculation. Give them the proper context in order to prevent the worst from happening. But to do that, you need to be really, really, really what I call dog shit honest with your children. Tell the absolute truth all the time. Not even little white lies. Little white lies simply teach them it's okay to be false. People, there is nothing you cannot tell your child. There are things they may not understand, they may not comprehend, but you are the parent, you can explain it. There are times when they know something's not right, and if you try and sweep it on the rug, under the rug, or if they ask you some really direct, some uncomfortable direct question, yeah, that one. <laughs> you better hit the reset button if you think you can get something over on your kid. They know all about you. Dog shit honesty. If there's an issue... Clean it up as soon as it's laid. Believe me, there's nothing to be gained from ignoring it. Oh, it'll eventually dry out and the smell will go away after a while. But the first time it rains, and it will rain, you'll step in it, and then it's even messier to clean up and smells worse. And here's the deal. When you think you're being smart and loving and a good parent protecting them from some horrible truth by not being up front, they know. They always know. They may not understand, but they know. They know you haven't told the truth. And the first brick in a wall of hypocrisy is laid. And if you don't clean that crap up, the wall gets higher and thicker and harder to tear down. And by the time they are teens, when they don't want to have anything to do with you anyway, ha! You're on one side and they're on the other with not a window or door in sight. And then look out. You can shout instructions and encouragement or admonishment and guilt, shame them, beg and plead all you want, but they can't hear you. Wall. The only way to get them in that case is to blow up the wall, which is messy, dangerous, and can cause a lot of damage. But even then, with love and honesty and everything you can do as a parent, you still cannot shield them from life. Memorial Day. 
1995. My son was seven, a beautiful Southern California day, one of those just another crappy day in paradise days, as I call them. Sky blue, a few clouds, nice breeze off the ocean, about 80 degrees, just a really, really nice day. It is amazing how some days, like memories, always remain crystal clear. We went for a hike. The front range of the San Gabriels above Pasadena. It is an incredible thing how you can be in the middle of an enormous urban sprawl like Los Angeles and you can easily find yourself in a place that feels miles and miles away. We drove up Fair Oaks from Colorado Boulevard, a mile, a mile or two from where the Rose Bowl stands toward the mountains. You make a few turns and you come upon this little state park with the most lovely little waterfall. The walk is about 15 minutes from the parking lot to the falls. The water comes off the mountain and falls 80 feet into this little pocket canyon. Such a lovely little pool. A hundred year or more old California oak shades the entrance to the pool and falls. The entire walk is shaded in a beautiful grove of California oaks as far from the city and as close as a place could be to an idol. As we got about halfway to the falls, a couple of women coming out stopped to warn us, be careful, someone is tossing stones into the pool from above. As we arrived at the place where the trail opens up to the falls, a number of people were picking up their things to leave. We stopped pretty much where we were under the protective canopy of the really large oak guarding the entrance to the falls. Just as a couple of pretty good-sized stones splashed into the pool in front of us. The falls were inviting, the water falling 80 feet into this pool, sitting in the bright sun, hot day. Of course, he wants to go in. Hell, so did I. So he gives me a look, kind of checking to see what I'm going to do, and before I can say anything, he steps onto this large stone that is just at the edge of the tree's canopy, and I can tell he's about to go for it. So I reach for him, taking him by the shoulder, and say, step back, please, pulling him back under the tree with me, and just as he steps back, I mean just, as he steps back, I don't know if it really was a rock. It could have been a dirt clod, a seed pod, a leaf falling from the tree, blowing in the breeze. I really don't know. But it looked like a hard, dark stone about the size of a child's fist, and it passed right through the space his head had occupied just an instant before. I don't think he ever saw it. But he saw the look on my face, and all he says is, I want to go home. I took his hand, and we get out of there. You know, it was one of those moments as a parent, even a bad parent, where you absolutely wonder what you were th possibly thinking. You were told not to go in there. And if something would have really happened. So we're walking out of the canyon, and about halfway back to the car, he stops, raises his arm a bit, and says, Daddy, my shoulder hurts. And I immediately start checking him. I take off his shirt, examining him, turning him around, looking for something where the rock, which I was sure missed, hit him. Nothing. Not a scratch bruise, nothing. By the time we get to the car, he's really having a problem and can't even raise his arm above his head without starting to cry. The entire drive home, I keep asking him if he was sure he was not hit by the rock, and he's looking at me like I'm an idiot. No. I told you no, Daddy. By the time we get home, he's complaining that his hip and his ankle hurt, and he can barely walk, so I carry him into the house. As a parent, there isn't much that can make you crazier than a child who's complaining about being in pain. Your first pulse is to do anything to stop it. On the other hand, you also learn pretty quickly that a child can exaggerate in order to get attention. His mother and I have been having problems, and kids miss nothing. 
So I was in that netherland of not knowing which of those two ideas I was in. Was he really hurting, looking for attention? It can drive you nuts. A year earlier, I had spent a very late night and a very early morning in the emergency room of the hospital because he had some really bad pain in his legs accompanied by fever. Now, ultimately, the doctor on call told us it was growing pains. Really? <laughs> growing pains. This doctor tells me that some children have growth spurts where their bones grow so fast, the bone becomes inflamed from rapid cell growth, causing a lot of pain. Growing pains? <laughs> You mean to tell me that isn't just some bullshit turn of phrase our parents use to explain why things can be a bit difficult as you grow up? Now, at the time, the doctor said, oh, give him some aspirin for the inflammation. Make him comfortable, and within 24 hours, he'll be fine. And he was. So this time, I'm thinking, growing pains. His mom comes home. I explain what's up with her. We talk about it. She agrees to give it till the morning, and we'll see. So we get him settled in for the night. A little children Tylenol, his blanket, a heating pad, the television, it's a rough night. He's not able to sleep. The Tylenol doesn't seem to do the trick, and the low-grade fever pitches up to about 105, and just as his mother and I are about to hit the door to take him to the emergency room, the fever breaks, pain subsides, and he's okay. Not great, but okay, and falls asleep. This happens a couple of times during the night. He wakes up in pain, high fever, but the fever breaks, pain subsides, and he goes back to sleep. In the morning, I go to work. His mother makes an appointment, takes him to his regular doctor. The doctor examines him, takes x-rays to see if there are any abnormalities. Nothing. Tests for bacterial infection. Nothing. Viral infection. Nothing. Nothing. They take another blood sample to send to the lab for some other tests and send him home with instructions to continue with the Tylenol, monitor his fever, and, of course, the heating pad. I'm feeling like a shit for not taking him to the emergency room immediately. His mother is staying calm, saying his doctor is on it now, and we should know something tomorrow. It'll be all right. If you could have seen the look on his face. That night, he's even worse. The wave of pain fevers about every 30 minutes, and he's up all night crying, and I keep thinking back to the canyon and the waterfall, the oak tree, and that hard, dark rock. Did it miss him? I mean, did it really miss him? Next day I'm at work when I get a call from his mother. I just heard from the doctor. Yes. There was something in his blood test. Yes. His white blood cell count is a little high. Yes. They want him to see a specialist. Okay. Now. Right now? You need to come home. I immediately left work. At the time, we lived in this, if you counted the garage, four-story townhouse. Garage at the bottom, living room, then kitchen and dining, then bedrooms at the top. As I got out of the car, I could hear this screaming and crying. And as I get up the stairs from the garage, it sounded like a war two floors above. All I can hear is my son screaming at the top of his lungs. No, 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 I'm not going. You can't make me. No, I'm not going. And his mother pleading with him, trying to make him understand that he needs to go to the doctor again. I climb the stairs and walk into his room just as he blasts his mother with another, No, no, no! They both stop when I enter and look at me with these tear-filled, fear-filled eyes. He's got one arm and a leg, the ones that don't hurt, wrapped around the bedpost holding on for dear life. 
His mother starts to say something about his not wanting to get dressed, and he starts screaming that he isn't going. It was one of those moments you simply cannot prepare for. In an instant, I grabbed him up in the blanket, fought, pulled, and pried him from the bedpost, turned to his mother, and said, get the car. It was all I said. She drove. I'm sitting in the back seat, our son in my lap, wrapped in the blanket. I can't tell if he's sleeping or unconscious. And as his mother drives, we are watching each other through the rearview mirror. I'm hoping the fear I can see in her eyes is not on my face. I ask, where are we going? All I hear for sure is clinic. I think I heard the word oncology in the sentence, but I wasn't sure, and I'm running through my brain all the various possible meanings of the word, parsing it for some good meaning. There were none. The Mormon tabernacle, what the fuck choir, begins warming up in the background. (laughs) When we walk into the clinic, I'm still carrying him in the blanket, his mother beside me, and as we pass through these automatic doors, which shh, open, these two really adorable girls, maybe nine or ten-year-olds, pretty dresses, completely bald, wearing knitted rainbow skull caps, come out, talking to each other in the way that girls do. They stop as they see us, a serious look crossing in their faces. They pass. The doors shh to a close behind us. I turn to his mother. Where the fuck are we? The tears are just so very close she can't even answer. We are ushered quickly into an exam room. Instantly there are two nurses and then suddenly a doctor. I'm only catching snatches of what's being said. Further tests, high white blood cell count, bone marrow biopsy. That's all I hear because that demonic Mormon tabernacle choir in my head begins a full-on 200-voiced concert version of what the fuck... And I keep trying to get them to sing Yanni or something from that twisted purple dino, Barney. I love you, you love me. But no, all that's coming out is what the fuck, what the fuck, and nail scratching on chalkboard discordant harmonies. Needles and syringes are coming out. My son is having none of it. So it's a full-on pro-style wrestling match. Have you ever tried to hold down a seven-year-old when he's determined not to be? It's taking two nurses and myself, this big bad dad with the what the fuck choir screaming in my ear, using all my weight to hold down my sweet child while they give him a sedative. Finally, he settles down. They pull out this needle for the bone marrow biopsy. You could have used it to give an elephant an enema. It looked like a spear. I thought it would go all the way through him. They put this thing to his hip, and the doctor makes this very hard jabbing motion, and I can actually hear the bone pop as the needle breaks through the bone surface into the sweet center, and as the doctor pulls the syringe back, I watch as red-pink jelly bone marrow flows. The doctor removes the spear, gives the syringe with the marrow to a nurse who spreads it on slides, just like you might spread jam on a piece of dry toast, right there. I'm watching my son turned into high school science project, a specimen. The doctor takes the slides and leaves. The choir is much quieter now, mostly because it's a segment of the piece where there's a lot of humming and ooing as they prepare for the next crescendo. It all has this dramatic ride of the Valkyries quality in a very soothing yet terrifying way. After two days and a really good sedative, my son is finally sleeping and his mother and I spend the time in silence. 
it's a quiet, peaceful moment. The choir finishing the current movement in a really beautiful series of ever-increasing harmonies. The nurse returns and informs us that the doctor would like to see us in his office. He sits us down and tells us in a very frank, even in neutral way, that our son has acute lymphoblastic leukemia, all. He has me look in the microscope and shows me how the white blood cells, the lymphoblasts, are exploding. It looked to me like a black and white supernova's sons dying. I had no idea what I was looking at. I could hear his mother weeping. Within 45 minutes, we are in the intensive care unit. It had this bridge of the Starship Enterprise look to it, subdued lighting, monitors at bedsides, electrical equipment pinging, televisions hung from the ceiling with CNN playing, the nurses stationed in the center, people moving about with quiet purpose, beeping, pinging, pinging, beeping. He's in this private room, one wall, a sliding glass door like a patio door, looking out onto the main floor of the ICU. I'm standing in the doorway looking around, fascinated and terrified by everything. They're trying to put an IV into the back of his wrist, a butterfly is what they called it. What a cute name. He had more than enough of being poked and pricked by this point, and he was simply not going to happen, so I asked the technician if this would be the last time he was going to get stuck with a needle that day. He answers, well, if we can get this line in, everything will be going through the line. We won't need to stick them anymore. I turn to my son with a, see? My son has tears in his eyes and the saddest look on his face. Promise? I look at the technician who nods. I promise. Without a word or anyone holding him down, he let the technician put in the butterfly. Over the next five years, that kid would get stuck. I have no idea how many times. Probably thousands for shots, drawing blood for tests, spinal taps, which at one point were three times a week. And in every instance, he never fought, cried, or put up a fuss. In fact, for the spinal taps, he'd curl into a ball on his side and go into a meditation of some sorts. The nurses were rather impressed by it. At the moment, though, he had no idea of what was coming, and neither did I. At some point, his doctor walked into the ICU. And it was the first time I realized he was Asian. Thai, I discovered later. He walked into the ICU with this quiet assurance greeting, everyone with a soft smile, small, shuffling steps, his hands held high in front of him as he walked, tapping the tips together like he was measuring out each thought. To me, at that moment, he seemed like the royal court doctor from the Forbidden City, dressed in a long red silk robe and little hat. He looked at his mother and I for the first time in four hours. The fear dissipated. I could literally feel it slipping away, the Mormon tabernacle choir from hell fading into silence. In a way that I came to greatly admire and appreciate, he gave us what initial information he had. The prognosis was good. And he explained to us that what was happening at the moment, what would happen over the next seven days, and the general direction of our son's treatment, what it would take over the next five years. Five years. I heard that. It didn't register at the time, but I heard it. Five years. He answered all our questions and made sure we had his number in case we had any other questions or concerns before he'd see us again the next day. With his wonderful smile and a it will be all right, Mr. Catlin. Assurance, he left. 
Daddy, was a tear-filled word that pulled his mother and I back into the room. And as his mother and I stepped through the patio door into his room, he was holding up this thing. It looked like a hand, kind of. It was at the end of his arm where the hand should be, but it really looked more like a large sausage. His mother went to get a nurse while I comforted him, and when the nurse arrived, she quickly assessed that the technician had missed the vein when he put in the butterfly. The IV fluid and the medicine it contained was going into the tissues of his hand, not his vein. That needed to be fixed. No, really? No needles, he said. Before they could reset the butterfly, they have to aspirate the fluid from his hand. No needles! Can we just wait for it to go down? No needles! <coughs> Another nurse comes in, and they each take a syringe with a really tiny needle on the end of it and begin sticking his hand and drawing off the fluid over and over and over. I assisted the nurses and held his arm still while his mother held him close trying to soothe him. He cried at first, an ouch with each and every stick, until eventually they trailed off into a very sad and hurtful whimper. And the look he gave me through it all, you're a lying sack of shit, old man. <laughs> Ah, yes, the law of unintended consequences. You think you're doing something good, something right, doing everything you can, of course, to soothe them, make them happy, make promises. No, you suck. After seven days, three days in intensive care and four in a regular room, most of the time when I wasn't by his side, I spent on the phone talking to friends and family, giving them the news, or alone crying like a baby. He came home. We left the hospital him with a catheter in his chest, a direct line to his heart to give him certain of his meds, and me carrying two large grocery bags filled with pills and medications and assorted medical items, essentially creating a mash unit in our home. Well, for me, it was the time to get back to work after being away for a week to try and figure out what life was going to be like now. It seemed clear. Nothing was like before. It never is when a child is ill. My life had just taken a 180-degree turn, and I had no clue where it was going. I just knew it was looking black. For our son? Well, from his point of view, he was fine. He had this thing in his chest that he wasn't quite sure about, but he wasn't in any more pain. He didn't feel sick. And most importantly, he was home. So what's the deal with all the crappy tasting pills he was being asked to take a couple of times a day? Now, I think everybody has heard about how horrible chemotherapy is. Horrible tasting, caustic, dangerous. If the disease doesn't kill you, the treatment might. Your hair falls out, bloating, loss of appetite. As an adult, you're expected to have a certain ability to understand what's going on and understand this is temporary, and if you do what's expected, everything will work out okay. You'll get better. Children don't understand this. All they know is that they're no longer in the hospital, they're not in any pain, and they want things to be the way they were. Most importantly, they do not want to take really horrible-tasting pills, many horrible-tasting pills, many times a day. There were two main drugs my son was taking. Vincristine, which is the cancer-killing drug, and tasted somewhere between draino and bile. And prednisone, a hormone which is used as a vehicle to direct the vincristine to where it needs to be, and which causes rages. A wonderful combination of chemicals, which in the case of an adult is vile, but manageable by taking the first with something pleasing to help get it down, and by keeping yourself a bit of, in a bit of solitude in order not to subject the people around you to the effects of the latter, Children, on the other hand, only know it tastes like shit and they're pissed and they have no trouble letting you know it. 
I came home after that first day back at work, parked the car in the garage, got out, closed the garage door, and could hear what sounded like a large wildcat of some sort screeching from the top floor of the townhouse. And as I made my way up the stairs, the chest kept growing in volume and raged. No! 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 And as I stepped into the room, I saw my son sitting on the lower bed, bed of his bunk beds, purple with rage, inches from his mother's face, spitting as he screamed each no. Hey, I said as calmly and easily as I could. They instantly turned on me, standing in the doorway, both with tears in their eyes and a look of shock. What's going on? Again, I tried to keep the calm tone, but what I was seeing was not making it easy. His mother could barely get the words out. He won't take his medicine. No! I don't have to! came the dark response as he moved into the shadows of his bunk bed. I tried to explain to him that he needed to take his meds. No! That he was still sick. No! I'm better! Each response was like a trapped animal snarl from the darkness as if Gollum from the Lord of the Rings was trapped in my son's room. Dark, angry, primal, not a child, not my child, not my innocent. It was disturbing. His mother tried. Well, put it in jelly or pudding. But before she could finish the words, he was back in her face. No! Hey! It came out automatically out of me. Sharp, clear, strong. Now my animal, a much bigger animal, was out. I took the little white pill from his mother. You will take this pill. It was said as a statement of fact. I won't. You will, because if you don't, you will die. And I heard his mother gasp, don't. You will die, and your mother and I will not let that happen. That stopped him for a moment. I don't care. Well, we could do this two ways, I said. Your mother will put it in a pudding or jello or ice cream. No! Came the snarl again, or I will make you. You can't. I won't let you. He was clear, but so was I. I'm bigger than you, and I will. And with that, I leaned into the darkness, fighting with him, bringing 200 pounds and the strength of a grown-up into his bed. I am struggling, fighting with the most precious creature in my life, but I am clear he is going to take his medicine. He's just as clear. I have all my weight on him, holding him down. I've got his nose closed with one hand. I'm holding the pill with the other, trying to pry his mouth open. And behind me, I can hear his mother softly crying, saying, Don't hurt him, please. Don't hurt him. When finally, thankfully, he says through clenched teeth, Okay, okay, I will. In an instant, I flew off and gave his mother the pill and bolted from the room and down the stairs to the kitchen where I stood breathing hard, fighting tears, freaked out by the experience. What I had just done was horrible, abusive violent, and I'd moved beyond just being a bad dad. I had abused him, but I was not going to let my son die, not if there was anything I could do about it. So, when your child is ill, you become a subject matter expert. Back when this happened, there wasn't much, as much information on the Internet as there is today. No WebMD, some web search engines, but Google was new. My brother-in-law at the time was finishing up his doctorate in psychology at Washington University in St. Louis, and so we got in touch with folks there in the medical school. A large package arrived in the mail, and I spent a lot of time at bookstores. My library grew by volumes. I read about everything from the latest homeopathic remedies, new age cures, cutting-edge medicines, to the latest cutting-edge technology, bone marrow transplant. Anything and everything I could find, I learned. Bottom line. Leukemia is an autoimmune disease. The treatment is similar to the treatment for AIDS. Kill bad cells, promote healthy cell growth. 
The combo of incrustine and the prednisone changes your body, your sense of taste, your moods. For a kid, <laughs> this is major. He suddenly would not even look at chicken or hamburgers. Fish of any sort made him gag. He was basically hot dogs, pizza, and salads. Yes, he became this really weird vegetarian. We'd go to restaurants and he'd order salads. I mean, what seven-year-old orders salads? <laughs> we gave him mega doses of vitamins, anything that helped clean the bloodstream of crap. We figured it was the only thing we could do to help. We had him on mega doses of vitamins, see him bioflavonoids, which are extract from grape seed or pine bark. We had him taking pills made from the bark of a tree in the Amazon. Beta carotenes. We had him on 175,000 international units of beta carotene a day. He turned orange. And with the bloating and hair loss from the prednisone, he looked like a pumpkin, all bloated and orange. None of that was gonna none of what he was gonna go through none of what he was going through was easy. Constant needle pricks for blood tests, multiple spinal taps, a couple of minor surgeries to place the catheter going into his heart. And then there was the constant medical supervision, multiple visits each week to the clinic in the early part that tapered off to once a month and follow-up checkups for years. There was the constant worry of being, being near anyone with a cough or a sneeze. A secondary in illness can kill a person with suppressed immune systems. Between the vincristine and the prednisone, they strip white blood cells from the body. Those are the cause of the disease, half-formed, deformed, and mutated white blood cells, so they kill them, allowing only those strong enough to withstand the onslaught of the chemicals to survive, using the principles of evolution, a survival of the fittest concept to destroy, then rebuild the immune system. In children, at the right age, it works. Too young, and the chemicals can kill you. Too old, and your body isn't plastic, changeable, or able to adapt, and the disease kills you. The incristine was the drug they used to do this, but they also used these powerful steroids, prednisone and its evil brother, dexamethasone. Those are used to suppress inflammation and help transport the vincristine to where it needs to be in the body, deep in the bones. These are very powerful steroids, mood-altering drugs. We all know the effect of using steroids for bodybuilding. Sudden mood swings and rages. Oh, a six-year-old on prednisone. They go from sweetness and light to the dark side instantly. There's no buildup like most children when they get cranky. <laughs> no. It's sudden and immediate, and they cross all lines. A child, under the most circumstances, would never throw a fit and tell you what a horrible parent you are at the same time. That's a line a teenager crosses. But a child on prednisone is like having a teenager, a terribly bipolar teen on their best day, take over your child. It's freaky. A drip from an ice cream cone becomes not just upsetting, but horrifyingly bizarre. They won't just cry, stamp their feet, throw a tantrum, lay on the ground, flail about, scream at the top of their lungs, spit, thrash, turn purple with rage and curse, or shout all sorts of really inappropriate words. No, on these drugs, they go for the jugular. Children on prednisone have an uncanny way of finding the button that goes right to the heart of the matter and stops you in your tracks. My son and I were at the mall having a falafel plate with extra hummus. It was a treat. We loved to share that. I looked at my wallet and realized I had an extra $5 bill. That was it. The bank was pretty empty in those days, but in this moment, I felt we needed to have a little fun. So, hey, let's go to the arcade. His eyes get wide. Oh, Daddy, really? Yeah, let's go. And off we went. Now, $5 at the arcade is nothing. I think we were playing the Simpsons version of Whack-A-Mole, Whack-A-Homer. 
How appropriate. Within minutes, the $5 was up. Come on, bud, that's it, let's go. Now, the protest began slow, like it does with all kids when they want something. Come on, one more time. No, it's time to go. No, one more time. That's all the money, buddy. That's it, $5, that's all I got. Get more money. No, I'm not going to get more money. That's it. Let's go. And this is where Satan showed up, kind of popped into the conversation. It started in that slow, sort of still reasonable tone, but quickly gained both volume and intensity. Get more money. Get more money. Get more money. Then it got personal. You suck. You suck. I hate you. You suck. Then it moved into the really scary part. You suck. I wish you were dead. I wish I was dead. I'm going to walk into traffic and die. You suck. I hate you. You suck. Now, you have to imagine, mall, arcade, Saturday afternoon. It's not crowded, but it's also not empty. A crowd gathered. We're standing near the entrance to the arcade as my lovely son has a complete and total meltdown. You suck. You suck. I hate you. I wish you were dead. I wish I was dead. You suck. At this point, I bend over to him and speaking very softly but directly into his ear, I say, buddy, I'm going to walk to the car now. I'd like you to please follow me. I then turn and walk out of the arcade, hoping and praying he's following me. Thank God he did. But all the while, continuing his monologue of what a sucking, horrible father I was. You suck. Suck. You suck. I wish I was dead. I wish you were dead. You suck. So picture the scene. I'm walking from one end of the mall to where the arcade was to the total and complete opposite end of the mall where the car was parked in the garage. All the while, walking about six feet behind me is a seven-year-old spawn of Satan talking just loud enough so I can hear him. So, of course, everyone we pass can hear him. You suck. You suck. I hate you. I wish you were dead. You suck. The crowds are parting for us. I wish you were dead. You suck. I'm going to kill myself. You suck. You suck. And just as my foot hits the escalator to go up to the parking garage, he hones in, finds his mark, and fires. You're just a despicable white man. (laughs) Did I mention that his mother's Latina? When he was about two, he came running down the hall one day, jumped in my arms, and declared, Daddy, I'm brown, you're pink. Pink. We were separated by this point, his mother and I. He's brown. I'm picked. You're just a despicable white man. That hit me in the heart, and I sort of crumpled as the elevator went up, and all I remember thinking was I wanted to kill his mother. Not really. She's actually a lovely woman, but at that moment, I wanted to kill her. The rest of the walk to the car was quiet. We got in. Finally, I asked him, sweetheart, you okay? What was that about? After a thoughtful moment, he says, Daddy, I don't want to die. He fell into my lap and we held each other, quietly crying together for a very long time. Fear. Fear of dying. Fear of losing a child. Fear. This was the very core, the very center, the very essence of what we were faced with. Fear. A couple years later, when my son completed his chemo protocols and was graduating from the clinic, there was a gathering, a party of sorts for the kids who had made it through. In the time that he was going through treatment, two children his age died. Each time it happened, he'd go into a depression. But it was a happy gathering at the clinic that day, not too over the top, ice cream and cake and photographs with the doctors and nurses. A time to be grateful. 
I remember there was a lot of activity off to the side in one of the examining rooms, nurses going in and out in a hushed hurry, doctors. At some point, I casually walked over to see what was going on. Inside the exam room on the table, a young boy hovering over him, his parents, a wave of fear rolling out of the room, intense, palpable, overwhelming fear, raw and real. I've heard it said that children are subject to the consciousness of their parents. Part of growing up, the rejection of parents during adolescence, the struggle for self-identity, all leads to a person coming to their own conclusion as to what life is about. But when you are young, so very young, parents have great influence on the consciousness of their child. Take a look at your own values, behavior, beliefs. They're not original. You know where they came from. With all that fear in the room, billowing waves of fear, filling the rest of the clinic, I could feel their consciousness, the conversation playing out in their thoughts. He's so sick. I'm so sick. He's not getting better. God make him better. I'm not getting better. We're losing him. Don't let him die. I'm dying. Don't let me die. What is happening? Why is this happening? Why is this happening? Why am I dying? I'm dying. A few weeks later, we were back at the clinic for a regularly scheduled blood test and checkup. I asked. Found out the child died that night. Fear. Fear. My son did not die during the course of his illness. He was extremely sick and at one point so very sick that I could feel myself self-entertaining such thoughts, fear of his death. He struggled with those thoughts as well. I know he told me about a reoccurring dream he had of being on an operating table and then flatlining. It would wake him up in the middle of the night. A couple of years ago, while at college, he got his first tap, an angel, an archangel, large, powerful, hooded, dark, and brooding. And to me, when I first saw it, and to many others, when they first see it, it looks like the angel of death. He calls it his guardian angel, says he saw it near him as he was healing. Guardian angels, angel of death. Potato, potato. I was fearful, he was healing. Fear is a baseline state for a parent. Most parents, we don't call it that. We believe we're looking out for our child's best behavior, teaching them about life, modeling good behavior. We're not aware of it, but fear plays a big part in parenting. Fear they will fall down, hurt themselves. Fear of their getting sick. Fear of getting into the right schools, getting good grades. Fear of having the right friends. Fear someone might snatch them. That amazing twinge when you're in a public place and you lose the sight of him. Fear they might do drugs, drink. Fear when they start driving. We use fear in a way we discipline them, model their behavior. When a son wants to learn to play the flute, take dancing lessons, or learn to cook instead of playing sports, the father fears what that means and might belittle the boy's dream. When a daughter discovers boys, we fear her heart being broken, being abused, physically hurt. The natural fear any parent has about the potential of our children being physically, emotionally, and mentally abused and hurt makes us say things and do things that we don't want to believe about life, but we do. But it's not their fear, it's ours. 
We have it. We create it. Impose it upon them. doesn't matter whether it's for good reason or not. It has the same effect. It teaches them the world is not a safe place, that they shouldn't trust their own instincts, go after their heart's desires, live. In the most non-too-subtle ways, we teach them to fear. And while it affects them, it freezes us. We can never know why things come to us, into our lives, into the lives of our children. But there is nothing that comes into your life, your child's life, that cannot be handled. Even death. Along with the challenges come the opportunities and tools needed to get through it to the other side. Sometimes when you get there, the other side, you still have to deal with the parts of you that are still locked in the past, frozen in the fear of that moment. People who know me, knew me through those times, say that because of what I did, the decisions that I made, and how I handled the situation, I'm a great parent, a wonderful and loving father, a good dad. That may be true. But I also realize now that I made many decisions at that time out of fear. I was stuck in fear, fearful for my son, fearful and filled with a lack of trust that his mother would handle the situation well, well, fearful what people would say about me if I said yes to opportunities that might take me away, opportunities that life was bringing me, opportunities that could have provided an outlet for me and a distraction for him, maybe an easier life for all of us, possibly. But I was fearful as to whether I could make it work, be any good, what might happen. So I said no, and yes was probably the better answer. The universe wanted to support me, support us. I was frozen. I guess I wanted the experience to be as hard as it needed to be. I could have made other decisions, other choices, not colored by fear, remembering that every challenge comes with the tools to handle it. You know, a tough thing to remember any time, really tough for a parent when your child is facing his mortality. You'll say anything, make any deal. Say yes when you say no, and no when you should reconsider. Remember, the law of unintended consequences. It's just a corollary for the law of cause and effect. Nothing was ever hidden from him as he went through his experience. There was no lying, no half-truths about what was happening. He knew the truth anyway. He was fully informed, even at the beginning, when he didn't understand what was happening. We took the time to answer all of his questions, explain what was happening, truthfully, completely as we knew. He was empowered at every moment, and in the end, he knew more about his treatment and what was going on than either of his mother and I. My son has become the most amazing young man, not because of what I did or didn't do, decided in fear or otherwise. He's amazing simply because of who he is and how he took on the experience for himself. He just turned 23, starting his life. Me too. Not at 23. My work as a parent is done. It's been done for a while now, really. And I used to joke that he was been my guru. He is, will always be my teacher. He's raised me up. I think children raise the parent. Raise the parent up if we pay attention and allow. Still gets embarrassed when I don't act like the parent. Don't act my age or forget I'm the parent. Reverting to a Homer-like or Peter-like characterization of parentness. I asked him once, a year or so ago, if he'd let me tattoo my name on his butt cheek like a signature. (laughs) He was mortified. What? (laughs) You're a work of art, the most creative thing I'll ever have a hand in. You're a masterpiece. I just want to sign it. You. It'll be kind of like Michelangelo's David. He told me to piss off. Kids. They're so See, this is what you end up with as a manual, the parent's manual. Now, I could give you this, 
but you wouldn't understand a word of it. And what you did understand, you might or might not find it useful in any situation. Kind of like tonight. I think about that rock a lot. The one under the oak, the shadow. I think back to it from time to time. It missed. This is him. listening to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast. We bring this to you thanks to Lighthouse members and funders and listeners like you who support the cause. We are grateful to the SCFD Tier 3 for their support. More information on Lighthouse Writers Workshop and opportunities for involvement can be found on our website at www.lighthousewriters.org.